It's the 24th of March, 2015, and this is episode 198. This show is intended for informational and educational purposes only. What cryptocurrency enables is new, empowering, and exciting, but we're not experts. Just obsessed companions walking the road towards a more peer-to-peer future. Welcome to Let's Talk Bitcoin. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the editor-in-chief here, and today we're talking functionality and the future. The second half of today's show is my recent interview with Anthony DiOrio on his projects ranging from CryptoKid and Rush Wallet to his daily video show at Decentral.tv, plus of course Ethereum. But first, we're talking with the guys at an upstart Bitcoin bridge company providing bill pay services for everybody. Here we go. Today on Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Mark Vick and Grant Brown, president and CFO, respectively, of Bill Pay for Coins, a service that allows you to use your bitcoins with a lot of other things that normally wouldn't you wouldn't be able to use your bitcoins with. Guys, how you doing? Great, doing well today. Mark, can you kind of talk to us about the the basic value proposition of what you guys are doing at Bill Pay for Coins and why it's something that you know you decided this was the opportunity to jump into in the space? Well, Grant and I got involved in Bitcoin a couple of years ago. And, and one of the things that we noticed was that it was difficult to use them for more daily activities. I mean, it'd be nice if you could go down to any store and use it, you know, like you use a credit card. But Grant has a background in bill payment, and he suggested the idea of building a website to let people pay bills with their Bitcoins. And that's what we have developed. So when people go to billpayforcoins.com, is this a service that like I need to have an account with and then I set up preset things? Or is it just like I, I give you an invoice, a number that needs to be paid at one of the vendors that you work with, and it's like a, a one-off type of relationship? How deeply do I have to trust you in order to use a service like this? You do have to trust us a little bit because you are transferring Bitcoin to us. But the process is pretty simple. You create an account. We need your name and your email. We need your address. And then as you enter each payee, we're going to need to know their billing information and your account number. And then once you set up a payee, you can simply enter a USD amount, pay the bill, and we'll prompt you with a QR code for Bitcoin. So you guys accept Bitcoin right now. Have you looked at doing other tokens? Is this like an exploratory effort? And then the idea is to expand other things, or are you very focused on the Bitcoin side? Well, we actually do take Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Dogecoin right now. We may take other coins in the future, but we're really focused on Bitcoin. That's what got us into cryptocurrency and seems to be the leader right now. So that's where we're focused. So one of the things that um, is really valuable about Bitcoin is the ability to make these payments uh, you know, make payments generically and have it be very low cost. Um, the place where cost usually gets added in is in that conversion when you're going from a cryptocurrency into what I like to call a legacy currency. There's that kind of, that's the greatest point of friction in the space. So can you talk to us about your fee structure? Like what type of cost should I expect if I'm going to use your service as you're t- describing here? Yeah, right now it is a 1.99% fee. There is a cap on that so it doesn't get too expensive. But one of our goals over time is that billers are going to contact us and say, hey, we don't want the USD, just transmit the Bitcoin to us. And at that point, the fees would become negligible because once everybody is using Bitcoin, like you say, the friction is going to be gone. 
Yeah, and the other thing is we, you know, we're continually looking to lower our fees. I mean, we our fees were um, a little bit higher when we first relaunched, and over the I think about a week ago, week and a half ago, we lowered the fees again as we've created some efficiencies in the back office and then found ways to reduce costs. And we expect to be able to do that again here in the next uh, next thirty days or so. One of the weaknesses that cryptocurrency has, because it's a push system rather than a pull system, right? The monies that we're used to using tend to be pull systems, where if you have a regular bill that you have to pay, chances are pretty good you've set it up on your credit card or some other form of pull payment you know, from your bank account. The vendor just kind of makes the request. They already have the information that gives them the authorization to do so. And you know, if you want to stop them after the fact, well, you have to go and you have to you know, reverse it and do all this other stuff. With cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, that doesn't really exist. So I assume this isn't a one-off sort of thing. So tell me how, how this works with recurring payments. What would I expect to see after I've done the per- first month where I set it up and you know I paid everything manually? Is it that same process every month or is there a recurring element here? Today, it is you need to actually actively go to the site to actually schedule or execute the bill payment. We do have plans to add the a recurring component. We're looking at some technologies that would potentially allow that, but we're also setting up partnerships. We think will allow for those sorts of things, uh, partnerships with different wallets that will allow individuals to potentially set up some form of recurring payment in the future. No recurring payments now, but that is something that you're looking to expand to in the future. And one of the things we've heard back from customers is they've, they've said, hey, you know, we, we'd like to have a scenario where we receive some sort of a, a reminder or notification that would prompt the user to come back to execute a payment. And that's, that's also something we're looking into doing. Yeah, it almost seems like kind of a recurring you know, reminder invoice is almost what you want to do where like, because you know what the payment's going to be most of the time. Well, assuming you know what the payment's going to be, I assume there's some things that are variable too. So this sounds like it's kind of like, like this is your, your fledgling effort into this space. And the intent is to, is to grow the functionality that you're able to offer, to grow the relationships that you have. So talk to me about you know that. I mean, is this a, a temporary type of niche that you're occupying? Because sometimes we see companies filling what I call bridge functions, where you've got this you know, new type of technology economy and you've got the old type of technology economy. And you know, we've identified this point of friction. And the goal of this type of company is to provide an interface that goes between the two and to ease the, the tension or the friction that's going between the two. Where do you see bill pay for coins in a year or two years, if you can project out that far? I think, and Mark and I have talked quite a bit about this. I mean, initially, we, our first thought was, because we, what happened was there was bill pay for coins was sort of under different leadership previously. And Mark and I saw it. And we thought it was a great service. And you know, with both of our backgrounds, we thought it would be a good fit. We acquired it and really had plans to completely redesign it and, and overhaul it. So that's what we've done. Initially, our thought was we wanted to really offer, just like you said, a solution that would kind of be an interim solution, a kind of a short-term fix. As we started to look at it, we thought, well, wait a minute, there are other areas we can add value where this can have long-term value, long-term potential usability for, for individuals that are involved with the service. We have designed a few other uh, components that we're integrating into it. For example, integration into wallets is one of them. Uh, there's a tool we have called Coin-A-Friend, which is think of a scenario where you know, you and your roommate maybe owe on the electric bill or, or the rent. Coin a friend allows you in session when you're at Bill Pay for Coins to send a notification to the other individual and allow them to participate in the payment of that bill. But that's going to continue to evolve to include things like financing, 
where individuals can take short-term loans, 30, 60, or even 15-day loans just to be able to pay a bill if they're short on funds. So as we add these other services, financing component, and as, as Coin-A-Friend evolves and integrate with wallets, and we offer things like recurring payments, and, and, and the other thing we're going to offer is emergency-based payments. So if you've got that 11th hour payment and it's got to be paid tomorrow, absolutely, or the lights are going to be shut off, we're going to be able to offer that as well. As we offer those things, we think the, the long-term value will be evident to the user, and I think it'll, it'll be a longer play for us in a year, two years, or five years. Talk to me about the company. You know, uh, Mark, you're the CEO. Grant, you're the CFO. Tell me about the other people who are involved in what you're doing. Let's start there. <laughs> Obviously, Mark and I, we, we do have some other individuals that are sort of behind the scenes that help us with some of the banking aspects of this. As you can imagine, you know, that, that can be something you've got to navigate your, your way through carefully. We have some other individuals that sort of act as sounding boards for us and give us some technical input as well. For the most part, in the day-to-day operations, it's pretty much Mark and I with uh, the support of these other folks, probably, I'd say probably four other people in the background that, that, that help us with the process of, of marketing and, and navigating the banking services. So if I wanted my customers to be able to pay their bills with Bitcoin with your service, is that even like a, a use case that you are working on or are you almost entirely from the user side, right? Somebody wants to pay a bill and so long as it fits, I mean, tell me how, how you, how the decision gets made about which vendors you accept bill payment for and which ones you aren't right now. So we, that's my responsibility. So I actually work directly with um, the the vendors that, that will be integrated into the system. Um, it's a long process. Uh, it, it can be painful, but, uh, you know, I think part of it is we do have kind of a, a, a source we look at to, based on my past experience, to identify uh, billers or, or vendors, individuals, or certain organizations that, that have um, a large volume of bills that where there would be the greatest demand. And so, you know, we, that's kind of, we use that as sort of our, our compass to identify the, the organizations we want to integrate with. So you're kind of integrating networks more than individual mom and pops. Correct. Yeah. That, that doesn't mean that we will not, I mean, we've had people email us and say, Hey, listen, there's this, you know, mom and pop, I pay them, you know, I pay bills to them and we'll say, okay, we'll take that. And, and then we'll, we'll work to integrate them and include them in the service. So we're, we're very much open to, I mean, our goal, like Mark said, is to is to make Bitcoin available for just the everyday stuff, right? I mean, that's that's what's going to grow the network and, and bring value to the regular user. We do have over 40,000 payees in the system right now, but you can still add them through your account once you set up an account. As Grant alluded to before, there was uh, we had this one user who wanted to pay, I think it was a feed store, like a little feed store in town, and it was a $25 bill, and, and we got that set up and got that pushed through. So. We're very dynamic there. Are there any particular vendors who you're pushing a lot of volume through? Are there any vendors, you know, any small vendors that surprised you or any, any things that jumped out that were like, oh, okay, that, that makes sense to me now that I'm seeing it used. But, you know, before I wouldn't have thought about that. When we come up with, when we first were thinking about who the payments would go to, I thought, you know, utilities, credit cards, and loans. Those were kind of at the three categories. We've seen Payments go to like uh, investment houses, so people are buying mutual funds or something to to schools to paying tuition. There was another one the other day that that I thought was really odd. Just it's just everything you just you just can't imagine. You can pay any bill with Bitcoin. I mean, this is so it just blows me away. I saw a tax bill I think recently. Somebody paid a ticket. So we I've seen the ticket. I've seen the tax bill. So I mean, people are you know they're they're getting creative with finding the the stuff that they need to pay. 
we don't want to talk about our actual numbers, but our growth in terms of users, we're growing at roughly 29% a month, month over month. So that means, I mean, we're, I mean, we've got aggressive growth. We've seen on the payment side, our average payment has gone from like 172 to $420. And we you know we're in the first 10 days of the month, we're up 78%. So, I mean, people are definitely using it and they're adopting it. And I think the thing that really helps is we offer a guarantee. It's the bill pay for coins guarantee. So as long as you follow the terms of the agreement, which basically means you give us the right address, the right information, we guarantee your bill payment will go there. In the event that it doesn't, we're going to cover any late fees and, and any other costs associated with that bill not getting there on time. Have you had any occasion to use that policy yet? We've had one or two people that did not provide correct address information uh, or, or for whatever reason, our risk models kicked it out and said, hey, this has to be a paper-based payment. And in those scenarios, although we had not instituted the guarantee yet, we, we did offer up to cover any late fees uh, and anything else. I, I mean, they were fine. They didn't take us up on it, but we had not put the guarantee in place. But we, since we were already offering it, we figured, well, why don't we just make it available to everyone? Right. That makes sense. That's where the guarantee came from. So talk to me about the company. You know, So uh, when did you guys get started? You said that you acquired the project from somebody who, uh, who earlier initiated it. Can you kind of talk about your plans? Do you view this as a startup? Are you planning to seek funding? You know, how are you financed now? We're self-funded. We acquired the company in October of last year. We kind of went into construction mode and kind of planning from October until I think we launched in December or January rather. To tell you the truth, we never had any plans for financing. Well, I will say that there's been quite a bit of interest. And I think that's something that Mark and I are continually discussing. I don't think we've kind of made a final decision about whether or not we're, we're looking for that. Well, one thing I can say is that what's positive is our growth rate is, is such that you know we're not really in a position right now where there's a there's a, any desperation or any, any need for that sort of thing uh, but but again we you know we can, we continue to look at that so guys this is a really interesting project i'll be checking it out if people are interested in either using your service or you know getting involved too you know we talked about some roles potentially are you guys hiring at any point are you looking to expand what you're doing are you looking you, you said that you're not necessarily looking for financing what are you looking for in the kind of broad scheme of things? And if people can fill those needs for you, where should they contact you? There's a contact page on the website. The About Us page has uh, both of our emails. You can email us directly at any time. We are working on an API, which will let other companies integrate with us if they decide they want to do that. One of the things we pride ourselves on is our customer service. We're very responsive to individuals. So if you send an email to Mark, or you send an email to me, I mean, I think our customers will tell you, you will get a response from us, not an automated response, but we will sit down, type it out and respond to you in detail to address any questions or issues you have.
On today's episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin, we're joined by Anthony Diorio, a man with many projects in the realm of decentralized technology and a longtime sponsor of my efforts here at LTB. Anthony, how are you? I'm well, Adam. Thanks for having me on again. So the last time we spoke, you were just about to launch Decentral.tv and a daily show, too, on top of it. So yeah, I'm super curious. You know, it's been a couple of months. Can you talk to me about that? Because, you know, I think Stephanie and I kind of exchanged little glances, you know, through the audio world that we live in when we heard you say that, because that's a really ambitious, you know, that's a really ambitious project, doing a daily show and making it video. How has that gone? It's going really well. Central TV, first, maybe we can talk a bit about that and what that is, and then how it ties in with uh, the show, which is Decentral Talk Live, which is our daily show. Decentral.tv is our dashboard for everything decentralized in terms of news and information on decentralized tech and Bitcoin, all those great things. And it's got exchange tickers, headline news, but the main focus is on video content. And we really thought there'd be a good place to have a, a video station that can bring together a bunch of different shows. So we've got partnerships we set up now. And the main flagship show is Decentral Talk Live, which is our Monday to Friday show, um, usually about 20 minutes, half an hour, where we do uh, interviews of companies in the space and not just in the Bitcoin space, but also other areas as well involved in, in decentralized tech. So it is a lot to do. We've done something like 60 episodes, I think, so far. So we haven't missed a day yet. And we kind of stockpile episodes as we go along. And it's working out really well. Uh, bringing the video into it is a little bit trickier than, than doing just audio, but uh, I've got good help with it. And we've had lots of guest hosts and lots of companies we've interviewed. So it, it's going quite well. You know, it's funny, you know, we do Let's Talk Bitcoin as a twice weekly show. And I've been shocked at how fast the numbers of episodes have added up. But I mean, as a daily show, you're going to beat us pretty quick. Yeah, it, it's going well. I mean, there's a lot of fine tuning that we continuously are doing. We've, we've since moved Decentral. So we've got a, a new studio that we're making right now. Uh, we've moved locations and we're using a, a makeshift studio right now. And we're going to be building a much better studio that's going to be, you know, a little more grand than the one that we had before. But it's going well. Doing a show, once you have the setup in the studio all done, it really just takes getting the person to commit to doing it 20 minutes, half hours. It's not too bad to do five of those a week. So the preparation time does take a little bit, but it's about two hours per show is what it's taking us in order to get each one out, which isn't that bad. That's not bad at all. That's actually really low for a video show. So Decentral, which is where the show is located, is your sort of co-working space. And as you mentioned, it moved. Can you kind of talk to us about that? Why did you move? Where did you move to? What do you think about the new location? Sure. So I'm going to take a step back and tell you what our transition has been with Decentral over the last few months. We've actually closed down the co-working space and we've moved to a smaller location. So what I was finding having a co-working space here is a lot of distraction and a lot of people not involved in the projects that I'm working on and, and being involved in many different projects, even having my team, like we got about 10, 12 people that work with me on a daily basis for the different projects. And it just felt better to not focus on another core business and that being getting a co-working space and working on a co-working space. It was doing quite well, but now we've kind of Everybody that's involved in the space here at Decentral is working on projects that I'm involved in. And it's allowed us to be more focused and helped me a lot with a lot of the distractions. So we still have our ATM here. We're going to be expanding to put another ATM in another location in Toronto. And it's one floor that we've got right now. It's about uh, 1,500 square feet. And we've got the studio here and we've got our desks here, the ATM. We had meetups here going on a weekly basis at Decentral. And in our new location, we knew that we were forming a partnership with a business development center in Toronto that's opened a new fintech cluster. It's a large government-funded space. And we're not taking any government funding, but we are doing all our events now 
out of their space. So we have a much bigger facility to do our events. We're doing once monthly. We've got one coming up on March 17th. Actually, Andreas is coming up. He's going to be the first, uh, first guest at, at the event that we're doing up here. We've got a few hundred people registered. The space at Decentral is no longer needed for events. So it's enabled me to kind of downsize a bit and shift the events to another location. So that was pretty much the process we're working on is, is only focus on businesses that I'm involved with right now and the people in the space, continue with the ATM, and then we're moving events and partnering up with another company called Mars. So the space has become almost more of an accelerator if it's just projects that you're working on, right? Or, or do you view, I mean, I'm trying to define what this is. Is it still open to the public? If I wanted to go and use the ATM, would I be able to, you know, knock on the door and get in or would the door just be open? Or It's a retail space. So people are coming in constantly. We had a very active ATM here. So they're coming in using the machine. But as, as terms of the office space and the people working out of the location, it's only people that are involved with CryptoKit, Ethereum, Decentral TV, a couple of the people that are partners of ours, like we have a, a gentleman that runs the largest exchange in Canada called Quadriga. So he runs out of here because we use his exchange on our ATM. Everybody that's here has you know, some type of tie into the businesses that, that I'm operating. Let's talk about some of those projects. So CryptoKit and I guess RushWallet, are those the same project or are they two distinctly different projects? So CryptoKit is our company. Within CryptoKit, we've got... But there is our, a CryptoKit product. product. Correct. And it can be a little bit confusing. So, so CryptoKit is our company. We're registered here in Canada. Our flagship product is the CryptoKit extension, which is a Chrome extension, Bitcoin wallet, and crypto tools with our PGP messaging built in. And then we have the instant wallet, which is Rush Wallet, which is an HTML5 cross-platform compatible browser wallet. That's by CryptoKit. So it's Rush Wallet by CryptoKit. But CryptoKit is the company. Gotcha. So the last time that you and I talked about CryptoKit was only a couple of weeks ago because I, you know, we're building something quasi similar for LTB coin. And, you know, CryptoKit sort of has defined the space as far as Chrome browser extension type wallets are concerned. So you, you mentioned that you are actually plan. there's something that's going to be happening with it and that you have kind of a plan in the works to take it to the next level. Can you talk about that? In December, I bought out my partner for CryptoKit. So 100% of the operations are now being run out of Decentral. I've hired a new CTO, a new lead developer. So we're really ramping up the work on CryptoKit. Before doing this, we had literally spent about three to four months on CryptoKit since its inception in 2013. Because of Ethereum and some of the other projects, it really never got the attention that I really wanted to put into it. And now that I've taken over the whole project, I can hire my staff in here. Everybody's working here and we're really ramping it forward. So the CTO that we brought in, Jeff Coleman, one of the geniuses, superb on the technology side of Bitcoin. He runs a technology meetup here in Toronto for Bitcoin. So he's taking the whole direction of the business and the technology forward. Our apps are what's on deck within the next couple of months. We've got the Android and iPhone apps about 99% done. The major thing that we're offering with theirs is a very clean, easy to use interface and experience and integration of OneName.io on both the wallet and the messaging system with the, with the PGP messaging. So it's going to be something that's not really out there where you're going to be able to just put someone's name in for GPG and be able to send them messages. So between that and be able to send people Bitcoins as well just by putting their name, that's the key features that we're going to be having with the new CryptoKit apps that we're putting out. And then it'll eventually lead to the complete redesign of the CryptoKit extension. Talk to me about CryptoKit and RushWallet as a project, because as far as I can tell, neither of these have monetization built in. And you're talking about applications, but I, I have a suspicion that the apps aren't going to cost money. Is this a business? Is this just a utility that you're pushing forward because it needs to exist? Talk to me about what your goal is with CryptoKit and RushWallet. Sure. So it definitely is a business. 
we're redeveloping our infrastructure right now and we're setting things up with a focus on partnerships. So there will be integration with Shapeshift down the road. There's plans on integration with Coinful Locks. The plan is to use a lot of these APIs that are already out there, put them into a wallet system that is the easiest wallet to use, the best user experience, and very simple wallet. So that is our plan down the road. So definitely business and money generation is the main, the main play for that. And it'll be done through different partnerships that we integrate right in with CryptoKit. So we think of it as how do you set up a wallet very easily? How do you get your Bitcoins or how do you first purchase your Bitcoins? And then how do you spend your Bitcoins? That's the whole three things that we want to be doing right from within CryptoKit. We recently hosted the Bitcoin Foundation, you know, kind of, it seems like they're almost yearly elections to these positions, but in fact, it was just a different set of positions rotating. And that kind of gives us an opportunity to catch up on the Bitcoin Foundation and what people think is important going on there. But, you know, you were a real driving force behind the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada. We don't host debates for you guys, so I don't often have the opportunity quite so much to see what's on the plate. What's happened with the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada since last time we spoke about it, if anything? And frankly, what's on deck for it? What are the goals in the coming year? So as part of my shift a few months ago when we were focusing on our core businesses, I've decided to leave my community-oriented things that I had done in the past. I first founded the Bitcoin Alliance of Canada. I've done a lot of work with the weekly meetups that we've done, and I've realized that I really need to focus on my businesses. You know, I've got a number of them, and I think I've done you know, a good job over the last few years of being a representative for Bitcoin in Canada and trying to promote the community events. The Bitcoin Alliance of Canada is a now a board of 10 members. I've resigned as executive director and as a board member. I've left it in the capable hands of the rest of the board right now, and I'm focusing on my core businesses. I really think that I did a good job setting up the alliance of hosting the expo we did last year in Toronto, which generated a lot of income for the alliance. They've taken it and they're going to be pushing it through so that I can focus on my core businesses. And then Ethereum is another project that seems like it might have that same sort of tone to it. You know, I know that you've got people working on it in your space, but at the same time, when we've talked about Ethereum in the past, it sort of seemed like your role is mostly front-loaded, but you've got more of an inside track on the project than myself or our listeners would. So how's it going? What's gone well with the project as you can see it? And, you know, what things were surprisingly difficult that weren't anticipated? So it's going quite well. I am quite active with it still. About a third of my time goes into Ethereum right now. Out of Decentral here in Toronto, we've got one of the main accountants for Ethereum. And we've got my uh, business partner, Ethan, who takes care of a lot of the administration stuff. We're a global company and set up in many different countries around the world. So even though it is limited, I'm still, you know, I've been to Switzerland already twice this year dealing with Ethereum stuff. I'm involved heavily with the legal stuff and just making sure things are going well. And the project is definitely moving ahead really well. Over the next few weeks, we're planning the initial launch. So we're waiting still to get some security audits coming back from some of the external guys that are doing work to make sure everything is running well. And then we'll be launching the first version of Ethereum. And that's something that's building up and something that is keeping everybody quite busy right now. You've got a lot of projects. So now let me ask this. Is there anything that's new on your plate that we haven't talked about before that isn't an update? The newest thing right now is the partnership we have with the facility called Mars. They've just launched a fintech cluster focusing on financial technology, and we are the liaisons for the organization in the crypto space. And my goal with this is to really make Toronto a hub for crypto and for financial technology. So we're working closely with them and taking our group of over a thousand meetup members to the events at their space. And they're bringing in a lot of the connections they've got with banks, with a lot of entrepreneurs in the city. So what's on my plate is removing the national wide focus of building the community. And I'm really focusing on Toronto right now. 
So our events, which we're doing monthly over there, we're getting a couple hundred people registered out to these things. And they're going to be much larger events. We've got almost like mini conferences is what we're doing. So that's something that's definitely new for me. So I'm not doing a weekly meetup anymore, but I am adding a much larger event that we're doing on a monthly basis. Sounds like a more focused use of time is the word of the year. Exactly. More focused and putting more attention into, again, the core businesses that I'm running here. That's something certainly I've noticed is that a lot of people had a lot of focuses over the last couple of years. And this year, especially, it really feels like people are drilling down, throwing off, you know, the other things that were attachments that were sort of distractions and focusing in on the core. It's very interesting to see that trend continue with you. It's the same thing, I think, probably with you. I mean, you talk about how many products I'm involved. You're doing a ton of things as well, Adam. Not anymore. That's exactly exactly right. Oh, no, if you... (laughs) You're focusing as well then. No, you have to. It's if you, if you actually want to accomplish, you know, things that are hard. I mean, things that are easy, things that, you know, are not, not that ambitious. I guess that's probably something you could do a lot of different things on. But for things that are hard, I mean, it's just hard. You got to focus. That's right. And for me, it, the events is a big focus now. And then also we got the expo that's coming out again at the end of the year. So that's one of the things that we're ramping up for as well. And that's in September. Yeah. So the expo that's in September, can you talk about that yet? I mean, I know that we're a ways out. That's what that's like more than six months. Wow. I'm actually giving a lot more time than I gave the last one. I think the last one, the preparation was about four months. Now we have announced it eight months before. And starting in April, once this, this event we're doing next week is over, we'll be starting to ramp up for that. It'll be similar to what we did last year. Probably be going with one track instead. And the focus is going to be blockchain and fintech. And that's the name of it this year. So it's the Decentral Canadian Blockchain and Fintech Expo. So we're really, you know, this the shift... I don't want to say away from Bitcoin, but the added elements of other technologies is what we're going to be working towards. It's difficult because Bitcoin is a lot of what I do and a lot of things do, but it's the expansion out into other things, which is getting much, be much more exciting for me and involving a lot of other different sectors. So that's what we're trying to get going right now. Focus, connecting the dots and inclusivity. Anthony, thanks very much. I look forward to speaking with you next time. Thanks for having me on, Adam. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Today's magic word is bridge. That's B-R-I-D-G-E. Bridge. You've got until the 31st of March to visit letstalkbitcoin.com and the Let's Talk Bitcoin iOS app to enter it for your share of listener rewards. Content for today's episode was provided by Grant, Mark, Anthony, and Adam. Music for today's episode was provided by Jared Rubens with the LTB theme song, and C for Four Hands by Daniel Kolsch, which is itself a reinterpretation of the same song by Niles Fromm. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. See you next time. So the show is over, but since you're still here, I'm just going to turn this on and walk away. Call it episode zero. The real first episode that isn't released as an addendum on the end of a Let's Talk Bitcoin episode will be released as a more focused pitch rather than me waxing poetic about the problem, but this is the work in progress. Questions or comments can be sent to Adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Enjoy a sneak peek at the upcoming show, Token Startup. Welcome to Token Startup, 
an inside look at a wildly speculative self-funded company obsessed with cryptographic tokens built on Bitcoin and how they could change everything. My name is Adam B. Levine. I'm the catalyst and de facto leader, if not CEO of Tokenly. Really though, my job is chief user and complainer. All the tools and apps we're building at Tokenly have emerged from problems that I had, personally, that were really annoying to me. And as it turns out, many of the annoyances on the internet that we have to deal with have to do with money and ownership, or rather a lack of those things. But new technologies like Bitcoin and the blockchain have already solved that problem. And so I've found myself in a situation where those annoyances are in fact a big blinking opportunity to build a decentralized team of amazing individuals, connecting the dots and solving the problems people don't even realize they have. This is episode number one. It's the 22nd of March, 2015. And today we're talking about debt and unintended consequences. When I buy a book on Amazon.com with my credit card, Amazon doesn't actually know if they're going to get paid for it until weeks after my order has been shipped and delivered. Because even though they might think that they've received the money, I actually have a long period during which I can call my bank or other payment agent and ask them to cancel or essentially retract that payment. I can do this because what I've given to Amazon isn't actually money. It's debt that I incurred from them, and then I ask my bank to pay on my behalf, which then the bank deducts from the total balance that I maintain with them. Debt is unlike cold hard cash in your hand, because it's a promise. And a promise can almost always be revoked if fulfilling the promise is more damaging to the person than not fulfilling it. That's a fancy way of saying that we deal with debt because it's convenient, and it gives us options. We can have access to the spending power for all or most of our money without having to carry it around with us. And of course, on the internet, there hasn't ever been a faster way or more convenient way than transferring debt, because although dollar bills or euros just won't fit through the internet connection, the promise from someone else to provide what you need certainly will. And so on the internet, historically, we use debt. But because debt is reversible, there are some unintended consequences that we just kind of take as a fact of life. First, The ability to spend money is the ability to prove that you are a person with money to spend. And second, money spent with the right information, but without permission from the person whose money it actually is, can and will be reversed. Because when you spend money you're really creating personal debt for yourself that your bank will then pay on your behalf, it's really important that the bank actually knows it's you who is creating that debt. If someone else gets your credit card and goes on a spending spree, it might be inconvenient for you, but you're probably going to get off with little or no cost, because the person who used your credit card wasn't authorized to do that, even if they did have the right information. So, the right information to generate a debt, which is all contained on your credit card, isn't actually enough to spend your money. The other element is authorization, or permission. If your money gets spent but it wasn't authorized by you, your money essentially gets unspent, and you can move on with your life pretty quickly. But what about Amazon? If they already shipped the book, they're out of book and there isn't much that they can do about it. Because of this, Amazon and marketplaces like it tend to wait to pay the vendors selling on their site because even after a sale has been made, shipped, and delivered, there remains a chance that at some point in the next month or so, the real owner of the credit card will get a statement, realize there's an unauthorized charge, 
and have their bank reverse it. This period of uncertainty isn't about Amazon. They're just protecting themselves from its fallout. The uncertainty is built into the way that we pay for things, because even though you think you're spending money, you're not. You are creating debt, and debt can always be renegotiated. When I have to fly somewhere, I take an airporter that goes from Napa to Oakland International or San Francisco International. The airporter is a cash-only business, $29 each way. Why is that? Cash in the hand is a magical thing. If I give you a $100 bill, once it's in your hand, it's basically no longer my decision about what to do with it. I could ask you for it back, and you could choose to give it back to me, but outside of physical force, there isn't much that I can do to get back my money. Compare that to a check for $150 even, which I could call up my bank and cancel either before you've cashed it or even after you've cashed it if I say I didn't write the check. Cash in the hand is the only way they can be sure that what they've received from each writer is actually real. And because of that, they have a very good idea of how much revenue they have, which means they can act with certainty with those funds sooner rather than later. They even have an ATM machine that lets writers create a debt with the ATM company in exchange for cash that can be spent immediately to buy a ticket without the possibility of it being reversed. So you get all the advantages of the accessibility of your cash. You pay the ATM company to take on the risk. That's what you're paying essentially with the fee, the convenience, and also the risk that that will be reversed. In exchange, you're granted this type of money that you might have slightly less of, but you can spend it now with the certainty that it will not be unspent at any point in the future. In 2009, the Bitcoin protocol introduced the idea of cash native to the internet. When you send Bitcoin to someone else, it's almost identical to that in-person cash transaction. In real life, the act of giving a dollar bill from your hand to their hand is the moment that ownership of that bill shifts from you to them. You stop being the owner at the same time and by nature of the fact and time that they start being the owner. With Bitcoin, what we think of as simply sending Bitcoin to someone else doesn't actually send Bitcoin anywhere at all. When I send Bitcoin, I take Bitcoin that I own, and whatever amount I'm sending, I replace or cover over my ownership with yours, which means that now you own and can control those Bitcoin and can reassign them potentially to somebody else, and I can't. Sending Bitcoin, just like giving cash, is irreversible, unless you actually talk to someone you sent the funds to and they agree to refund you. Because of this, someone receiving Bitcoin can be very certain that their monthly revenue won't suddenly drop for reasons that they don't understand. Both cash and Bitcoin offer certainty. They remove the big risk that's become just a normal cost of doing business, and because of this they can offer possibilities that previously haven't been possible. They take the risk of reversal time frame from 30 to 45 days after purchase was made and eliminate it almost entirely. There's still risk that the transaction might not happen at all, or even that it might be the wrong amount. But in the common scenario where you want to make a purchase and you do it and you send the right amount and there are no problems, there isn't even a second where the payment has been made, but it could be reversed. That risk of reversal period in money on the internet relationships can be thought of as the trust gap. Someone who's received a payment from a person has to trust that they really are who they say they are even though they have no way to verify it that isn't more reliable than simply getting the payment information in the first place. And further, that they won't dispute the payment because they just decide they didn't want to pay. The bigger that gap, the more it's going to take for someone to trust them enough to ship that product. And yet, even with this gigantic trust gap of 30 to 45 days, we still do. And people don't wait until they have absolute surety of their product. And in fact, 
people would view that almost as a fraudulent relationship, right? Where you order something and they say, okay, well, I've got it in stock, but I'm not going to ship it to you for 30 to 45 days because I know that, that it's still possible for this transaction to be reversed until that point. Someone would say, no, this is, this is absolutely unacceptable. And yet it's just become this kind of expected thing that, well, yeah, sure, merchants should and will trust consumers, even though there's really no way that they can enforce any of that. And just to have something disputed, even assuming they do get the payment, assuming that it's not a very, very large payment that's being disputed, the amount of time it takes to, to argue with the credit card companies and state your case and try and prove that you really did ship the product or that you, know, you, you really did act in good faith is an enormous cost unto itself. So again, Bitcoin and cash both, but Bitcoin on the internet eliminates this trust gap almost entirely because you don't have to trust anybody anymore. Once you've been paid, then you have actually been paid. So if we've eliminated the need to trust our customers on the internet, do we even need to know their names anymore? Identity and permission are two sides of the same coin. If you want to be able to check if someone has permission to do something, you need to know their identity. Because money on the internet requires permission, anyone you want to make a payment to needs to know your identity. If you replace debt money with cash money, does it matter any longer who you are? If you didn't have the cash or Bitcoin to spend, you wouldn't be able to spend it. And once it's spent, it can't be unspent or spent someplace else. Cash makes identity irrelevant. Actually, it's worse than that. It becomes friction in the buying process when you have to stop what you're doing, shopping, to type out your full payment authorization and identity complete with billing addresses, get your credit card out, type out 16-digit strings of numbers, and so on. Shopping on the internet is an almost ethereal experience until you get to the payment, where everything grinds to a halt. With the trust gap eliminated, there's really only one question that matters anymore. Can you pay? Anyone can sell anything on the internet to anyone else with bitcoins without knowing their names and without having to trust that they won't cancel the payment after you've shipped the goods. This means that selling and immediately shipping isn't risky because you've got the cash already in your hand. Since it's not risky, you might as well sell as much as you can. Hell, sell them a gift card, too. Next time, we'll talk about taking what makes this new cash on the internet so useful and applying it to other types of tokens that anybody can create and use almost for free for their business, a hobby, or really anything you can imagine. At the core, these tools and experiences are what we're building at Tokenly, and we're doing it in such a way that we think it's going to provide opportunity for people who really, again, have never thought about these opportunities before. It's not that this is a better way of doing business. It's an entirely new way of doing business. It creates new markets in places where previously there weren't any because commerce couldn't happen. But now, with the power of these cash-like objects that can trade seamlessly, you know, directly person-to-person -person on the internet, all of that sort of gets solved. And we can wind up automating a lot of the things that, that, were, di that were hard to this point and that previously weren't automatable. You just heard the first episode of Token Startup. We'd like to hear from you. Comments or questions can be emailed to hello at tokenly.co. To get involved with the Tokenly open source project, visit tokenly.co. This episode was produced by Adam B. Levine, and music was provided by Jared Rubens. See ya!